0: Super excited today to introduce this guest, and I, and I don't know if Dr. Richard Dawkins really needs an introduction, uh, but Angie and I are are here today to to speak with him and pick his mind. It, this is one of the world's leading, if not top, evolutionary biologists. Uh, just a quick bio in Dr. Dawkins: He was born in Kenya, and then he moved back to or moved to the UK when he was eight years old studied zoology at the University of Oxford, graduated with honors, then stays on to finish his doctorate. And I didn't know this, but Dr. Dawkins went off and was an assistant professor of zoology at UC Berkeley uh, in, in, in a very interesting time at, at, in the late 1960s. And then he went on to go back to the University of Oxford as a and he was on faculty there since 1970. In 1995, he was appointed the Simonyi uh, Professor of Public Understanding of Science at Oxford, which he held until 2008. He's authored 17 books now, uh, you know, some that you might have read, The Selfish Gene, The God Delusion, The Greatest Show on Earth, The Evidence for Evolution. I'm trying to get my hands on that down here in New Zealand. And then we're, today we're going to talk about his latest book, Flights of Fancy, Define Gravity by Design and Evolution. Dr. Dawkins, first, welcome, but I just have to say this book blew me away. The artwork was jaw-dropping. This is, it it was a real treat to read this, and I I just want to say congratulations on your latest book, but wow, welcome, and uh, thank you for writing this book.
2: Thank you very much. Oh,
1: Dr. Dawkins, this is a dream come true for me. Uh, studying your work uh, years ago as an undergrad in uh, zoology, it's just this is just a real treat for me. And as Chris mentioned, every night for the past couple of weeks, I've got to go to bed reading your book and holding it in my hands and being just moved uh, and uh, entertained. I I giggled out loud and I learned a lot. Uh, I I actually felt bad uh, pinning back some of the pages that were my favorite. So I just have a whole bunch of bookmarks in there to take more notes from. And not only the words on the page, which are incredible, all about birds and flying and inspiring science. It was just fantastic. But the artwork is incredible. Incredible, even touching the prints, they're slightly raised. Uh, your your graphic illustrator uh, definitely needs a big shout out to Jana Linzova. Am I saying yes. that right? <laughs> yeah. So I can't wait to get uh to get talking more about this book in detail. I promise to our listeners we will get there. But our first question for you is your curiosity and love for science in the natural world, when did that begin? And did you have that aha moment
2: that Pushed you forward in your sciences? Rather ashamed to admit, it was rather late actually. Uh, not re- not until I got to Oxford did I get really um, enthusiastic about science. Um, I sort of rather wasted my school days, and then when I got to Oxford, the discipline of the Oxford tutorial, where you have to write a, an essay every week, and you have to go into the library. Well, nowadays, you would probably just go onto the internet. But when I was an undergraduate, you went into the library.
1: Me too, yes. <laughs> okay. uh, it was, I got lost there once and got sat down in the corner and uh, cried a little bit. But then I picked myself oh, no. back up. <laughs> okay. But I, it was so confusing how to find the book that, that I was supposed to find. But then I got help from the librarian and I checked out the well, book. Well, and, and what
2: I, I liked about it was that it, we were not using textbooks. We were using the original research literature.
1: Absolutely. So
2: I would be given a, a list of papers to go and Look, look up in the journal, original journals. And then I had to write an essay synthesizing, criticizing, balancing arguments. And because the topic was rather narrow, it was possible to read all the, the recent research literature on that topic and become, as an undergraduate, a well, in, in effect, an expert on this very, very narrow subject. Yeah, and that um, uh, I think that fired me. I that that fi- that fired me up because um, I felt I was with the big boys and girls. I was I was um, you know,
1: contributing and uh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yes, that's I, yeah. Well, I,
0: one of the things that that fascinates me is, you know, since we started doing this podcast and if I had to go back and redo my PhD, I think I would go into evolutionary biology, it, it is a field that just fascinates me. And every species we cover, when I do start studying their, their evolutionary history, and that, that, that goes back millions of years, if not 10s of millions of years. It, it, it's a field that just is fantastic to study. So so I'm a bit jealous that, that I went to animal physiology and, and, and you've been able to study this for so many years what pushed you into evolution? What, what was, you know, what pushed you to study it and then how does it help us understand our natural world today? And then leading up to the book, flights of fancy, you know, the evolution of flight, but the bigger picture, you know, why is evolution so important to science?
2: Yes. Well, uh, I mean, I think you said it when you said you, you regretted not doing it yourself. I mean, it is, it, it, it's what makes sense of everything else. It, it always astonishes me the way uh, the evolution chapter is is usually last in the textbook instead of being first. How can you possibly study any aspect of biology and without asking the question, "What's it all for? What's it all about?" Mm-hmm. Um, it seems I think it's astonishing that anybody can study biology with with without studying evolution. So. I'm not sure that question needs an answer. I mean, yeah. any anybody who does biology can't help getting into it. I actually did my PhD not to we call it DPhil, in animal behavior. And um, I just retained an interest in evolution from my undergraduate days and then retur- returned to that mm-hmm. later. So I don't think I ever had an aha moment. I think I just... Um, well, the whole of the whole of biology forces you to have an aha moment about evolution, I suppose. Mm.
1: Well, and for a lot of our listeners that might not be as familiar with some of the evolutionary processes or even some grand examples of evolution. Would you mind sharing with our listeners some of your favorite or, or one of your favorite stories of evolution and how like I love I love your analogy about the eye and how that evolved would you mind sharing that with us
2: yes well that was really in in answer to the common creationist question what's the use of half an eye um and so you can do that with quite a lot of things sure taking an an organ and of of high complexity Mm -hmm. and showing how it could evolve from something simple. So the, the eyes are a very good example. Wings are another very good example what's the use of half a wing? And they have a chapter on, on that in mm-hmm. in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look at um, and another way of looking at it is look at fossils and and eyes on the whole don't fo- don't fossilize. Um, so um, there are certain groups of animals where there's a beautiful fossil history that you can follow. I mean whales is a good example. Um horses another one, elephants another one. Um in the case of whales, we know from molecular evidence that whales are related to hippopotamuses, oddly enough. It's rather, rather it's a very strange finding. Nobody saw that coming. Right. Um, but now now we do have a fairly good fossil record of of whales where you have an obviously land-dwelling animal with legs, and then you have an animal that spent part of its time in water also with legs and arms. And then gradually the arms and legs shrank until now with modern whales, they are, well, the arms have become flippers and the legs have just disappeared altogether. There's traces of the bones inside. Um, So that's a very nice fossil history. Mm -hmm. Um, The example of the eye that you mentioned, well, Darwin himself, did that, Darwin himself said the eye is a um, is a big problem, and then he solved the problem. Creationists love to quote just the first part of the sentence, just, just the way he says it's a big problem, and leave out the second part where he actually answers it. Um, so I've done that a number of times, but so have other people. I think the, the wing is a nice example because, you know, what what's the use of half a wing? Um, and we have a whole chapter on that in, in Flights of Fancy, um, where the answer is that anything that increases the surface area of an animal uh, enables it to um, jump a little bit further. For example, if it's a squirrel up in the trees, um, it can, if it can jump a certain distance without a little flap of skin, it increases the surface area it then can jump just a bit further if it has a flap of skin and the bigger the flap of skin, the further it can jump until in the end you get things like flying squirrels, which can glide hundreds of yards um, from one tree to another. And and there's a gradual ramp of improvement, a gradual uh, step-by-step improvement, which is what you need. So that's, and and you, it's easy to see how that could have culminated in, in crew flight with something like a bat. Already, if you watch things like flying squirrels and
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, the Australian flying phalanger, the, the marsupial equivalent, or the the flying lemur, which is not a lemur but but has a, a sort of flying sort of parachute, um, these are these are you can see them controlling their glide. They move the limbs, you know, in a way that steers them. And very easy to see how that could turn into true flapping flight.
1: Well, absolutely. And from <laughs> flight and all the feathered flying dinosaurs that we have uh, currently out there, some of them have decided to not use their wings and their wings have shrunk down. Why do you think that is?
2: Well, that's remarkable too. I mean we have a chapter in the book on on that very subject. If flying is so great, why do some animals uh, lose their power of flight, lose their wings? Um, I think it's something like sixty different group, different families of birds when they land on when they arrive on islands, lose their wings or or shrink their wings, probably because there are no predators on the islands, so they don't need the wings. And then you have to realize that biology is a strongly economic subject. Wings are costly. Mm-hmm. Um, they're costly to make, costly t- to use, and the muscles that you need to power them are also very costly and it's very energetically costly when you actually do use them. The extremely dramatic example of wings not being needed is when queen ants have had their mating flight. And the only reason they have wings at all is that they fly and mate on the wing. Then they settle down on the ground and dig a hole and start a new nest. Before doing that, they actually bite their own wings off or tear them off. Well, that really is a dramatic demonstration of um, wings not being necessary.
0: Now, I found that chapter fascinating because you 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 definitely jumped into a lot of a lot of birds down here in New Zealand. You know the mo- the extinct moa, the kiwi. You know we we have the kakapo, and even our bats. You know tend
2: to be ground dwelling a little bit. And yeah. Yeah, getting- that's right. That's exactly right. Um, have you read Douglas Adams' wonderful description of the of the kakapo? Douglas Adams wrote wrote in you know The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Man mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. also
2: wrote a book called Last Chance to See on animals that are in danger of going extinct. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And he wanted to um, go around the world recording in his own inimitable style descriptions of these animals. And the kakapo, he said, it has forgotten how to fly, but it's forgotten that it's forgotten how to fly. (laughs) And so it climbs up in a tree and launches off and then plummets to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) But it's very endearing, his description of it.
0: Yeah, yes, and I, ho- I hope to see one. There, there, There's talks of them finally reintroducing them on the main island again. So, you know, what less than 200 left in the world.
2: And they're on one of the outlying islands, aren't they?
0: Yes, yes, down, I think, Stewart Island or down near Stewart Island, yeah. off the, the the South Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're doing well. They're doing well on on the one island they yeah. have. But, you know, again, that's why New Zealand, we're, we're in such a dire crisis sometimes because all these ground-dwelling birds getting picked off by all the uh, introduced mammals. So so getting into this, uh, this, Dr. Hawkins, what inspired you to write Flights of Fancy? Because it it is such a fascinating, all these different aspects of evolution, like we even talked about whales and hippos and how that whole process happened uh, through the evolutionary history. But what made you decide, you know what? I really want to talk about flight.
2: Well, I mean, I could have written about swimming or, or digging I mean there are, I hope you do that was one of yeah, my exactly. follow-up I mean, questions it's, it's I would I would like one on
1: each big topic yes yeah.
2: there are all these are fascinating subjects I mean that you think about animals that live underground and that burrow through the ground or um, the deep diving mammals deep diving di- I mean that's right I mean that uh, the, maybe that'll be the next one um but so but but flying does have a sort of fascination I think for all of us uh, we met, many of us dream of flying.
1: Yes, I, I'm very lucky that I've um, had a handful of them.
2: Yes, and um, people who make computer games, you know, let, let, let you fly with your avatar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's great fun, too. Uh, throughout history, people have dreamed of flying. People, I mean, Leonardo da Vinci, for example, we have discussed him a bit and his, his inventions of, of flying. I think we feel kind of trapped on the ground when you watch a bird so free up there able to travel through the third dimension it's a great um, longing that people have i think but um as, as i said before uh, i maybe the next one will be about about swimming yeah
0: that would be amazing yeah. that
1: would be amazing and dr dawkins while you were researching and preparing the book did you learn anything new or did anything surprise you when you were writing the book?
2: Oh, I think so. Yes. I, I probably can't think of any specific examples just off the cuff, but, but yes, um, I, 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 I learned a lot. I mean, I, I read a lot for it and. Um, yeah.
1: The, oh, the aerial plankton really struck me. I, I really yes, enjoyed that yes, chapter. Yes. I right. never thought of it like that.
2: No, quite. Um, I mean, the, 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 the principle that animals need to spread their offspring far and wide, mm-hmm. um, even though they may be living in a very good place,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, it's because it's not going to be good forever. Animals, if, if animals look back at their ancestry, they're going to see um, their ancestors probably came from a different place, and, and for good for good reason
1: and they survived too right yeah, they had to survive has, <laughs> yeah. and then go to a different place it's incredible. Yeah, the,
2: the aerial plankton is, is full of creatures doing that and spreading their pollen or spreading their um, seeds, their spores, their young um, little spiders, little insects spreading around the world. So yes I, I, I was I learned a lot about that. I
0: wanted to jump in that uh, one of my favorite quotes in the book, and I wrote this down and, and I'm going to carry this one uh, for quite a while. And, and I definitely, again, for our listeners, this book is wow. It, it, Jaw dropping. Wow. You're interested in science. Read this book. It, it, it is amazing. And there was one uh, sentence in there. It said individuals die, but genes live on as copies. And I just that just so perfectly captures what evolution is. And when you were talking about you know spreading genetics and breeding, I I would if you could go back in time and and watch this process unfold, what evolutionary pressures were you think do you, do you think pushed animals to start to fly? And I think we started with insects, right? And then we went to pterodactyls,
2: and then. To birds, insects were way ahead of the vertebrate. Yes, mm-hmm. but um, insects, and then I, I suppose pterosaurs after after that, and then birds and bats. Um, I think, in a way, that the wonder is they didn't fly sooner. I mean, given that insects sh- sh- could 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 do it, um, and um, yes, it's it's quite surprising that it, that it waited as long as it did. To the, the birds and bats, waited as long as they did, and, t- and pterosaurs. I mean, the, because if you think about what, what flight is good for, is another. we have a chapter on that as well. It's good for so many things. It's good, I mean, it's fast travel, escaping from predators, um, spotting food, uh, migrating, all these things flight is good for. And um, so it's sort of surprising it didn't evolve sooner.
1: And do you think that some of these gliding species or flying snakes that you mentioned in the book that I'm like, okay, Chris, we have to cover that one on the podcast uh, that they don't technically fly, but they glide in the lizards as well. Mm. Do you think that over time they may develop wings and fly or do you have any, is there any, is there any examples of
2: evolution? One reason why they might not is that birds and bats are already there. And so, um, the niches are already filled by birds and bats um and so the perhaps um if 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 by some if a a plague of a a virus wiped out all the birds then i could imagine perhaps on and bats and i can imagine that perhaps flying squirrels or flying phalanges might stay up in the air instead of just gliding for a hundred yards I'm well, gliding for a hundred yards is a pretty spectacular thing to do yes definitely or jumping through the
1: water like the sail fit the uh the flying fish on fish yes mm-hmm. just
2: incredible and flying wow. squid as well doing the same thing but backwards right yeah <laughs> they use the
1: jet propulsion backwards I, I that I have to see I don't know if there's a video of that on YouTube or somewhere but I, yeah. I need I need to see there that yeah. yeah that's awesome oh, so great and now, switching gears a little bit, uh, because Chris and I are a big, big fan of educating not only our listeners to the podcast, but also uh, the youth. Uh, we, we do have some younger listeners that are very passionate about animals and both science. And so I'm wondering if you have any advice on how to help instill passion and curiosity for science, nature, and the scientific method in kids.
2: Oh, I, I I always hate that question. Um, <laughs> I think, um, well, uh, I I personally am not a, a don't subscribe to the view that um, the way to make it interesting is to make it hands-on. Okay, if that's I mean that on the face of it that would seem to be an obvious thing to do, um, and and it is a good thing to do. But I think. An equally good, if not better thing to do is to inspire them with the poetry of science. Um, the Carl Sagan approach, um, which you can do with biology as well. The, I mean, In his case, looking at the immensity of the universe, um, the romance of the stars and galaxies, um, you can inspire people with that. Uh, and, and that can be sort of hands-on as well. I mean, there's a there's a lovely demonstration. Forget who thought it up of of the sheer size of the universe, where you you take the children out onto a playing field, and you deposit a soccer ball on the ground to represent the sun, and then you to scale, you 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 then want to represent Earth, and so you walk. I forget what it is. May twenty yards. And then you put down a peppercorn. I may have got Aye, that one, but it's, yeah. it's something, mm-hmm. I think it's more like, it would be more like, more like a, more like a pinhead. Um, and then you walk maybe a hundred yards. I can't remember to, to put down Jupiter. And, and you say so you've got the, the solar system, which you can just about fit onto a large playing field. And then what about the nearest star? Proxima Centauri pick up another soccer ball and walk 2,000 miles. And that's the nearest star.
1: That's crazy. What a great visual. Yes. So that, that,
2: that's, that's a way of inspiring them. And, and they love that. I've actually done that with children. Mm-hmm. Um, they love it. And um, it really does turn them on, that that kind of thing. That That is sort of hands-on. Mm-hmm. but. The kind of hands-on, which is, um, I don't know, the the science of cookery, or or I I I, that, I I I wouldn't do that. I mean, trying to bring it down to us trying to trying to bring it down to the familiar, the mundane. Mm-hmm. It's not mundane. It's it's exciting. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Be- that's
1: beautiful, that, poetic, definitely. Yeah, that's why yeah.
0: We, <laughs> we studied for so long in college, uh, to get there. <laughs>
3: So, doctors,
0: where do you see flight going? If you could speed up time and, and the species that we have today, do you see anything, like, fantastical in the future for flight? You know, different animals either uh, evolving sure. to evolving?
2: I sort of feel if it was going to happen, it would already have done. Um, I mean, if, if for example, w- we note in the book that um, b- ballooning is a perfectly good way of getting lift. Mm-hmm. No animal's done it. Um, and and it, I sort of feel it, it probably won't happen since it hap- hasn't happened already. Um, that that would be one example of, a, of an, an innovation which hasn't been tried yet. Mm-hmm. Um, y- using something like hydrogen. Animals can make gases that are lighter than air. They can make methane. They can make hydrogen. Um, so... And they can make silk. And so to to make a balloon would not be, you might think would not be beyond them. I mean, the the components, the individual components are there. Um, Jet propulsion, well, that happens in water. I I can't imagine quite how that would evolve in Mm -hmm. air. Um, Space travel is probably not a, and possibility. Yeah. With some species, yeah. What do you, what do you have in mind? Um, we've already talked about whether things like flying squirrels might turn into truly flying animals. Also. Um uh Angie, you mentioned flying snakes and flying frogs. I mean, they're they're wonderful. The, the flying snake doesn't have wings in at all, really, it just flattens its body. Well, it moves its rib cage. It's it, it that's right, it, it widens its rib cage, but it's not like the, the flying lizard, where, the, where the, 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 the ribs really do shoot out, the ribs themselves shoot out. That's right, the ribs mm-hmm. shoot the out. Skin, it's incredible. The skin stretching between them that the snake doesn't do that, it just mm-hmm. simply makes the body a bit flatter by pushing the ribs out. Okay, mm-hmm. and it, it kind of wriggles its way through the air in mm-hmm. pretty much the same kind of motion as it has on land flying from one tree to another. It's a a spectacular sight. Look it up on YouTube. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely. I'm
1: going to. to, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll have to cover one of those species on our podcast for sure, because this book definitely perked my curiosity, which is a sign of a great book as you always do whenever Mm -hmm. I read one of your books or listen to one of your talks. Um, With everything that's happening with uh, global climate change and birds and their numbers are declining many migratory species especially here in North America uh, we we're, we're losing them at a drastic rate as far as we can tell are there is there any evidence of birds starting to evolve changes to be able to adapt and/or live with the pressures of the modern day world
2: Oh well there are some birds which which are just like rats and exploit. Uh, Urbanisation, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, for example, gulls, gu- her- herring, herring gulls, uh, for, for example, and, and no doubt there are American and New Zealand equivalents that do this. In, in Britain, um, herring gulls are, flourish on rubbish dumps, um, and um, so they are, in the same way, kind of rats and mice among mammals, uh, are. Um, going the opposite direction from from, the, from these endangered species you're talking about, they they, they become extremely numerous because they can exploit human uh, human existence, human waste, and human food stores and things. Um, but it is very sad that we're losing the species diversity that we're losing uh, so many species of not just birds and insects and and plants it,
0: yes yeah yeah and and that's i would be remiss if if i if i didn't ask you about this because it, it it is a lot of what we talk about in the podcast a lot of endangered species with the anthropocene the sixth mass extinction that, that many scientists believe that we're, we're at the beginning of or in the midst of so how do you see that impacting our natural world? I mean, you you were one of the most well-respected scientists in the world, uh, evolutionary biologist. So seeing the decay in the last, let's say, 50 years, how do you think that's going to impact our natural world in the next hundred or thousand years?
2: I'm no expert on it. I, mean, I think you're, you probably know more about it than, 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 than me. I, I suppose we lose, if we lose lots of species, we end up with, with uh, fewer species which are which, which become very successful like gulls and rats and mice um monocultures in in uh agriculture um are a menace i mean they're they're efficient for producing food but they they're they're a complete menace as far as, as conserving wildlife is co- is concerned um, there are efforts in some countries to preserve things like hedgerows, um, which are refuges for quite a lot of, of species. Um, but I don't really have much expertise in that, that field. I, I, I feel for it. I mean, I mm-hmm. I feel tragic. And the extinction um, is, is a genuine tragedy. It's, a, it's an aesthetic feeling a personal aesthetic feeling. I mean, it, 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 if, if um, elephants go extinct or rhinoceroses go extinct, um, it, 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 it is a, a, tr- a tragedy of an emotional aesthetic type for, for, for me. I don't want it to happen. I would like to see um, extinct species like thylacines brought back um, which they, they, thylacine might be because, because it's extinct sufficiently recently that the DNA can be um, obta- obtained. Um, it would be a, a great thing to see woolly mammoths brought back, thylacinus brought back, mm-hmm. woolly rhinoceros is brought back, um, Neanderthal humans, maybe. Yes.
0: <laughs> It'd be interesting to study that, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah.
1: Oh yes. And Chris is a huge fan of bully mammoths. So he, uh,
0: that's... <laughs> I did, I did some cloning in the early two thousands when it was the craze. Oh, really? And, and, yeah. Down to Texas. Now. Of, I mean,
2: is it feasible to, 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 um, put and to implant it, an embryo in a, in a, in an elef- elephant? We were working
0: when I was at the university of Florida. Some of my research was, uh, we were, we were looking on, on how to freeze semen of bull elephants because we don't have a good grasp on it yet. So, our advanced uh, reproductive technologies in elephants isn't quite there. So to be able to clone, I, th- I believe we'll be able to clone okay. mammoth embryos. It's the the fact of syncing up. I believe it was it was going to be Asian elephants as recipes if, if I remember right. Um, so syncing yeah, that whole enough. process up is going to be very difficult, and very costly. And so it's going to cost, me. You know, I know George Church and others are working on it, but um, I think in my lifetime, we, we might see an hybrid type uh, woolly mammoth born. But
2: yes, but we'll see. Yes.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. I hope so.
0: Yeah, we're getting there.
2: Not, not everybody does. I mean, some people think there's a kind of moral argument against it, but I don't with
0: that <laughs> I, I i was always a proponent for it i said they i was doing some uh genetic work and i'm like oh they need me on this project because i <laughs> i wanted to figure out some recept genetics but uh yeah that's a that's another story for another day yeah
1: but 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 focusing on big picture wonderful great things uh dr dawkins you have a foundation, and I would love for you to share with our audience just what the mission is of the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science.
2: Well, Reason and Science is what it is. Um, and it recently uh, merged with a large American foundation called the Center for Inquiry, CFI, which um, has quite a long, for a long time been um, had um, an interest both in secularism and and uh, n- n- and a non-religious life, and also a, a, on scepticism about things like homeopathy and telepathy and flying saucers and things. Uh, I mean, at least testing, at least at least taking a, a scientific sceptical view of mm-hmm. such things. Um, so my foundation has merged with that, and so it's not possible for me to give an account of the aims of my foundation now separate from the CFI. So it's part of the same thing. And so, um, well, among the things that we're now doing is we have a a project called TIES, that's Teacher Institute for Evolutionary Science, which is a teaching project, Um, but it's not directly teaching children. It's teaching teachers how to teach evolution. Mm. And uh, it's run by a wonderful woman called Bertha Vasquez um, Who is in Florida? Uh, she, she's she's a, a a teacher, a high school teacher, a middle school teacher, I think, in Florida, um, and she runs courses for other teachers, really to arm them, in, in order a, 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 against the kind of pushback that they get as soon as they come to evolution in the, in the biology course. They get pushback from children, from parents, from school boards. From head teachers, and they are not necessarily equipped to answer the These arguments that they get, and what Bertha's courses are doing is trying to uh, give them the arm the armament that they that they need, give them the arguments that they, that they need. So that that's one that's one project. Um, there's a project for um, rescuing. People who are religiously who, who are either not not religious or, or or anti-religious in places like Pakistan, places like Bangladesh. Oh wow! They're yeah, by um, uh, sort of machete wielding
1: their life, yeah. yeah,
2: and 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 threatened by by justice system which t- takes doesn't doesn't really take a very sympathetic view. Um, so that's. Um, and another of our of our projects um, uh, there, quite a lot of it is a, is about the skepticism we've got we take lawsuits against um big shops um ch- chain shops like walmart in america um which um sell homeopathic remedies we, you could, not, not that that's necessarily um should be Ill- illegal but they but they don't distinguish them from real from real meds so they're housed in the same shelves mm-hmm. as real meds and what we're trying to do with these lawsuits is to get them to put these quack remedies on separate shelves preferably labeled, these these things don't work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
1: trust me. One of the classes I'm teaching right now is equine health and nutrition and trying to talk to students about all the supplements that they can feed their horses like turmeric and paprika. And I mean, they're wonderful seasonings on our human food. And there is some evidence in human medicine that they might be an anti-inflammatory what have you. But they've never even been looked at in horses or if they have it's a crazy dose. And you understand the scientific process, but it's uh, it can be hard to to get that through to um, students that are just starting to learn it.
2: Yes. And I mean it's actually rather a, a good lesson to mm-hmm. how would you investigate that? How would you what, And
1: I just made that project um, yesterday and I'm giving it to the students this week. And as a professor, it's always challenging when you give a new project because you never know if it's gonna sink or swim, you know, if it's gonna be good or bad. So I always ask for their feedback, but,
2: well, but that's a bit uh, different from from homeopathy, where well if you did an experiment to test homeopathy. There would be no difference between the experimental and the control. Exactly. Be, you know, exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: Yeah. Well, as we as we start to kind of wrap this up, because we're very cognizant of your time, it just really quick, Doctor Dawkins, are we winning this 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 science war? The the communication because you are definitely one of the world's top science communicators. Uh, you know, you for for years you've been out there in the public, talking science, fighting for science. Do you feel like we're winning, you know, the arguments?
2: I, I can't decide that. Uh, I'm, in some ways, I think we are. I mean, the 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 COVID experience is is perhaps revealing. Um, I don't know how, how you feel about it. I, I feel that the prestige of science has gone up as a consequence of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the astonishing speed with which these various vaccines have been produced. Um, And um, I think we're now alerted to the danger that this may not be the the last such pandemic that we have Mm -hmm. to endure. And I think, um, is it possible that that the the COVID experience has um, alerted people to the importance of science or how, how science in something like the same way as Sputnik alerted America yeah, to dangerous. the need to really put put money and effort into, into science. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether COVID perhaps had, has had a similar effect. I, I hope it has. It would be a silver lining.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: In Dr. Dawkins' You've had this prestigious, iconic career. Uh, I'm just having goosebumps thinking about all of your accomplishments. What is one or two that you're most proud of?
2: I suppose my second book, The Extended Phenotype, uh, is the one I'm most proud of as, as, a, as a scientific achievement. Um, but I'm... I, I, do do think communication is important too, and therefore um, the books that I've written, which which are attempts to communicate science, I, I feel that uh, they're a very worthwhile thing to have done. I've, I'm I'm glad to have done them. I'm glad to have got them under my belt, and feel that that's a sense of achievement in my life.
1: And hopefully our listeners will go out and pick up the flights of fancy because it is so beautiful. Uh, and we'll put a lot of information about it on our show notes,
3: That's amazing. but
1: let's, let's say one of our listeners reads the book and they're wanting to read another book of yours. What one or two books would you recommend after reading flights of fancy for people that have interest in some of these evolutionary theories and concepts?
2: Well, if the, if the, Young people and, and Flights of Fancy is partly aimed at young people. If they're even younger, actually, then I suppose the magic of reality, which was specifically written for children and is heavily illustrated. So that will be for, for young people. For adults, um, oh goodness. Um, yeah.
1: I mean, I have my personal oh, favorites. What's that? <laughs> uh that. The Selfish Gene, uh, The God Delusion, and Now Flights of Fancy.
2: So yeah. Yes. Okay. I, um, well, uh, uh, I, I'm pretty pretty fond of them as well. Oh, good. <laughs> um, um, Finding Mountain Probable, I think, is my most underrated book. Um, in 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 terms of sales, mm-hmm. and and I, th- I think it's one of the best, but it, but but it's sold. Um, I think among the least.
1: Well, you're gonna get some uh, copies yes. sold after this after this podcast. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Interviews at, or, after this podcast airs and it'll definitely be with me and Chris. So you will always have two more. So <laughs> yes, I'm going to be buying as many as I can. <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully a lot more. I'll be yep. giving them as holiday gifts. So that's for sure. Okay. Um, and I'm just curious uh, because I know Darwin had such an effect in uh, Dr. Tinbergen. I teach a lot of his concepts when I'm doing animal behavior, who was uh, your uh, professor, right? Yes. Uh, But now, in this day and age, who is influencing you currently?
2: I'm not sure about that. I think I'd rather not. I mean, mentioning dead people is fine. (laughs) Okay.
3: Yeah.
2: They're still influencing you. Yes, to mention living people
1: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah well you're definitely a big influence on all of us so that is uh, a wonderful thing and and we definitely appreciate your time yes yes just just,
0: a couple more questions before we let you go dr i've got to say flights of fancy go get the book i'm my library is now going to start i'm going to start filling it up because i just uh, the writing is it's 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 beautifully written. It, it's at a level where you just absorb it and it's it's flights of fancy I have oh, to go yes. back and I must read d- it again. Yeah. Uh,
1: oh yes, I must admit in the evening to wind down after my kids go to bed and a busy day of work. I like to watch Netflix sometimes, mm-hmm. some yes. documentaries, but the past two weeks, when I've, I have I read about 10 pages a night because I'm so tired, I have been skipping Netflix and jumping in bed, <laughs> propping my pillows up, turning my little nightlight on and enjoying this flights of fancies book like none of the other. It's mm-hmm. it's it's. It's re-energized me and refreshed uh, my scientific curiosities. And so I'm really hopeful that our, our listeners out there will do the same because at, at this point, it's much better than anything on Netflix.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's very nice to hear. Thank you very much. And you want the hard copy if you can get it because it's just yeah, it's it's beautiful. it's so beautiful.
1: Yeah? It's, almost yeah. a, it's almost like a, a it could go on a coffee table too. Yes. It's just yeah. a conversation piece, yeah. honestly, because of some of the, the artwork and how well the topics and chapters are laid out.
2: So, uh, I think the publisher done a good job, I must say. Oh, they did fantastic. Final question.
0: Are you working on the next book, probably? And then where can our listeners uh, follow you? I, I know you're on Twitter and social media. Is, is there somewhere else where they can go uh, to learn, like, if you're coming out or if you're speaking somewhere?
2: Uh, yes. Well, um, actually, we're just now in the process of putting together a, a, a website. It's not launched yet, but it will be launched very soon um it will be the 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 um url will be richarddawkins.com okay. um it's not there yet but that that's what it will be richarddawkins.com Perfect. um and that will certainly have uh a list of speaking engagements uh it it ha- it will have all, all my books up there and a, a selection of articles as well um so that that's that. Um, yeah, okay. I mean, that, that, I, and as for what I'm working on at the moment, I mean, I'm working on a new book um, called The Genetic Book of the Dead, um, which is um, sort of aimed at the same audience as the selfish gene. And um, I, that's, I've done about 35,000 words of that so far. And so that's still, that's got a, a long way to go yet.
1: Amazing. Well, we Amazing. look forward to hearing more about it in the future, and we definitely will keep our eye on richarddawkins.com. I myself will be very excited to see a lecture date somewhere in Florida
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, so that I can come. Whereabouts where
2: in Florida are you?
1: I'm where the, where the University of Florida is, so it's uh, Central Florida. A town called. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I spent a sabbatical in Gainesville. Oh. I do, I do know the place. Okay.
1: well you're more than welcome i have an extra guest bedroom <laughs> yes. lots lots of kids dogs and cats but there is privacy so yeah.
2: uh, <laughs> what about new zealand where where about the new zealand uh, in land? the
0: in the wakado just south of auckland so uh, definitely you can come stay with us I, I don't have any cats i have two little kids though, so they might drive me nuts but yeah yeah beautiful country uh, i know you you've you've been here you've written Quite a bit about it. It, it it's one of the special places on on earth very unique biome so I, I feel very uh, I mean it,
2: yes and and we hope it's not too much ruined by imported animals
0: <sighs> we're trying we're trying
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> try to try to get rid of those mammals that don't belong here well, it, yeah.
2: it's, it's, it's one thing if they get there sort of by accident but de- deliberately introducing them, yeah, is, it, is, them. is a sin
0: yeah yeah all the elk and everything on the south island yeah yeah even american turkeys are here <laughs> so
1: yeah
0: uh, well the, uh, dr Dawkins. It's, it's, oh my gosh i i we feel so grateful that you were able to come on the book is a flights of fancy Define gravity by design and evolution i know we've had authors on before but this is one if i had to pick one this one you, you it's a must read it's an absolute must read introduces you to dr dawkins writing if, if you're not familiar with it a beautiful book dr thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today
2: it's been a great pleasure thank you very much
1: We really appreciate your time and we look forward to many more books from you in the future, maybe one on deep diving or uh, some other fantastical, uh, amazing thing. So thank you so much. And I will come see you in Florida and we will be in touch. We'll put all this information on our show notes for our listeners at allcreaturespod.com. And we will also keep you updated on social media about uh, this interview and then other features that uh, Richard Dawkins will be doing in the future. Thank
2: you so much indeed.